0: Hey, listeners, this is Marsha Epstein, and this is Talk With Me. And I've been having great fun talking with people all over, all over. Thank you, Jana Carlson, for joining me from Sweden and Brenton Booth from Australia and people near and far. This is really wonderful. And shout out to Wolfgang Karsten's and Matthew Hall for mentioning Talk With Me and their enjoyment of this podcast in the interview about Helen Highwater. Oh, man, that meant so much to me. Thank you, you guys. Hey, Today I get to to be here and do this show with somebody in Lawrence, Kansas, who you all, wherever you are, need to know about. I'm I'm gonna, as I tend to do, go off on this little tangent. But when I did a show with Scott Silsby, oh gosh, maybe it's been about a month ago. He had a poem. He has a poem in a book in his Friday uh, Muscat Muskrat Friday Dinner uh, collection. has a poem that's about stories about poets and Scott has this idea and I think it's gonna happen Scott I'm pushing on you if it isn't already definitely a thing Um, this great idea of having a collection that would be younger poets telling stories of older poets telling stories of poets. I love that oral tradition. And and so uh, I'm saying all this as a preface to, my guest today is somebody who has been writing for a long time and whose work is amazing and and as, as we were getting ready for the show, I, I pulled out my books and I showed my guest this poem I have bookmarked from the first time I heard him read, We've done projects together. We did a William S. Burroughs night a couple of years ago. And and I really enjoy this person and his work. So I'm going to finally tell you that I'm talking about Jim McCrary. Welcome, Jim McCrary, to talk with me. And we're going to hear some of his poems and some of his projects, some stories. It'll be great. Thanks, Jim.
1: <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: It's a lot of fun. It's, it's cool. And, and, and you, I, are you the one who told me that slams started around the stripper pole in North Lawrence? <laughs> well, in Lawrence. <laughs> uh, Not that slam started here, but no. that the Lawrence slams, yeah. the first uh, venue was a strip club. Is
2: yeah. that right? <laughs> yeah, well, uh, myself and Cheryl Lester, uh-huh. who teaches in the American Studies Department, uh-huh. she had been in Chicago where there was a great slam uh, at a club. I think it was called the Green Windmill or something. And she really got off on that. And I have been in San Francisco, where there was a uh, very active slam on Folsom Street above a bar. And so we decided to do that here. And this was in, the, I guess, the early 90s. And we looked for a venue, and we looked and looked, and there weren't as many places then as there are now. There weren't as many coffee shops or whatever, whatnot. Uh, But uh, she went out to the Flamingo, which was a strip club, just like one block outside (laughs) the city limits, for obvious reasons, in North Lawrence. And it had been around forever. The guy that ran it was a really interesting guy, uh, did things for the community, put on a free Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, When the uh, city outlawed alcohol in the parks, the softball teams were really upset, so he built a softball field out behind the strip club. But anyway, Cheryl went out there and talked to him, and... He had no idea what a poetry slam was, but he said, I'm closed on Monday night, and if you can pay my bartender, do whatever you want, you know? <laughs> and it really worked out well because, among other things, he had a great sound system, he had a great lighting system, he had a great stage and a microphone, and yeah, there was a pole. <laughs> But, uh, and there were tables uh, and chairs. And for, for reasons I can't
1: <laughs> claim
2: to know exactly, but for some reason the chairs had rollers on them, had something to do with lap dance. But as it turned out, it was a great venue. People loved it. They came, they drank, they sat around, they yelled, and we encouraged. Encouraged all that. And we had the slam and they voted. We had entertainment in the midst, and Roger Shimamura brought his uh, performance group from KU out their class and they did stuff. And uh, Barry Barnes went there, Tony Allard, and Judy royman and all. also people had a really good time and it lasted. Uh, it lasted until. Uh, another strip club open <laughs> and it was open seven nights a week in west so, you know, i'm really sorry but i gotta be open on monday night so you guys are gonna have to find another venue and uh i posted some video that barry barnes made on, on youtube if you can look around all right uh, but anyway we uh we switched the venue to the jazz house and it never really worked as well. And I'm convinced it's because the chairs in the jazz house had <laughs> nails on,
0: and there was no stripper pole. There was no stripper pole.
2: But we had people that came from across, from Topeka, from Kansas City. Uh, we had great people that worked there, and uh, we the place would fill up and. People really had a good time, and uh, a couple of the the people that actually worked there danced during the day, came back uh, at night, signed up for the open mic. Awesome! I think one of them competed in the in the slam. So we were glad it was a community. Community thing, so yeah,
0: and in the small world zone. So I order a book called the Wedding's Wetting Stone, like a, a sh- stone uh, for sharpening knives. I order this book, um, a small little chap book, because it's a book based on. It's from Taylor Molly, um, and it's his first book writing about his experiences with his first wife who died of suicide. So it's this really tender book, and I order it. and Taylor recognizes, sees Lawrence, Kansas as the address. And, and so he's sharing these stories. Taylor Molly was one of the poets who came and performed there. I think he was maybe getting his fine arts degree at K-State, oh. so coming in from Manhattan, Kansas, Great. to be able to do that. So he has very fond memories of poetry at the strip club in Lawrence, Kansas.
2: <laughs> uh, it was interesting, you know, we, we uh,
1: agreed, Cheryl and I, uh,
2: we, we, didn't, we didn't wanna up play the competition part Uh anymore. We wanted the slam idea, but we tried to make it as on, as, as spontaneous, you know, there was, and we played around with how to do it and ended up kind of with the Olympic style of holding up signs, Uh but it's been loud, you know, letting people is uh, a lot of same one so we were you know the yeah there was there was a uh a playoff and there was a, an eventual winner but mm-hmm. but that was uh, uh kind of the, the, we wanted the point of getting from from the beginning to the end to be as important as what happened uh-huh. Uh-huh. you know although people were i don't even know if we gave it i don't think we gave any kind of prize maybe or maybe not i can't
0: remember what i remember reading about slam prizes from chicago where apparently the slam started was that the original slams the prizes were twinkies <laughs>
1: <laughs> huh. so there you go <laughs> well there was a, tell you professor who
2: name was <laughs> who said uh, that the prize that he won was to be able to read his poetry while holding on to the pole on the <laughs> stage of the club. That was prize enough. And, um,
0: Are you thinking that person would feel embarrassed to have that be shared now? <laughs>
1: I'm
2: embarrassed to share it. That <laughs> <laughs> was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I mean,
2: you know, I mean, I've been involved in, I've, I've been to a lot of poetry readings. Uh-huh. Believe me, uh-huh. and uh, that's cool. And you know, when I came here, there was really the only poetry was up on campus. And myself and a fellow named George Kimball, another fellow named George. Uh, John Fowler, we opened a gallery called the Massachusetts Street Co-op down on Massachusetts Street, and it was probably 65 or 66, and we had readings up there. There weren't any. I think there was one other gallery in downtown Lawrence and maybe one so-called coffee shop, if you can imagine. Uh, and but we had poetry readings there, so and now I'm still involved with the tap room. Yeah. Which is like five doors away from where it is forty wow. years ago. So as you can see that's my, cool. My uh,
1: my uh uh,
2: uh travel on
1: the road <laughs> to fame
2: as well as gone exactly two blocks <laughs> in 50 years.
0: That's not really true, but it is kind of cool that the two venues are so close together. <laughs> and Tap Room has been around forever. It's like, okay, for people this it's this amazing show that Jim McCrary and Megan Kaminsky who's also a poet and is uh, teaching at at the University of Kansas. They curate this show and they start with a 10-slot open mic and they have these guest poets and it's wonderful. But the first time you go there, it's like, oh my God, where are we going to? Because you walk into this bar in this old building you walk down these stairs that everything is black there. I mean, like what I mean is it's literally painted black. So you're going down into this blackness. And I think the only light on those stairs is probably the emergency exit <laughs> sign. And if you grab the banister, it's like, it's shaking because it's not really well attached to the wall. And then you get downstairs, and most of the year, it's about as dark down there as the stairwell is. Your eyes adjust, and you realize the ceiling is about seven feet tall. And you watch some of the people who are coming in who are almost hitting their head on the ceiling. Yeah. (laughs) And there it is, and it's amazing.
1: (laughs)
2: Megan does a great job of posting uh, pictures of the events on, the Taproom Poetry uh-huh. series Facebook page and website. So, if you're curious at all, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and the venue never changes. Right. The photos are the same, the same backdrop <laughs> and the same uh, glitter. And the
0: glittery, I don't know what you call that little shredded curtain that's <laughs> <a> glitter. <laughs> it's really great. And it's on a Sunday at five, so it's actually an easy time for people yeah, to get. Yeah, Sunday to. at five. And yeah. it goes on.
2: Uh, most of the year we take a break into the summer uh, and over some holidays, but we have uh, competed with Final Four, celebrated.
0: <laughs> That'd be KU men's basketball yeah. Final Four at right times. So. And
2: Megan does a really good job of curating and, and always tries to have people from out of town yeah. read. Yeah. And then we encourage the open mic, and, like, and we've uh, really had a great time with the open mic series. Uh Uh, Heard a lot of uh, really good poetry.
0: Yeah. People
1: we
2: haven't heard from
0: before. And you have a book table, and and I'm I'm one who says, buy the books, folks. You know, support local art, support artists that you hear. And when you buy at an event like that, man, that's the best way to support what's really going on. Yeah. And sometimes there's a tip jar for helping the travels of the poets who are visiting. (sighs) Yeah. Because you know, for the most part, people are traveling and and reading with no pay for reading. Buying the books is part of the deal, and then you have this great thing where you you get to go back and read that poem again and hear that person's voice in your head. It's very cool. And Danny Kane from the Raven, is kind of the bookstore person, right? He is,
2: yes, he, he's a book table person. Yeah. Uh, Megan's a curator, and I'm kind of the mascot. You're the mascot.
0: (laughs) I want Uh, you to read something.
2: Let me check. Okay. Uh, Next Sunday, Uh it's coming Sunday.
0: Which would be Sunday the 12th of November. Yeah,
2: we have two visiting poets, Toby Altman and uh, Emily Barton Altman. Uh, Both of them really great poets. uh, Editors, uh, Emily does a podcast, uh, and uh, so they're coming from. I'm pretty sure they're coming down from uh, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Iowa, 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 or Illinois. I'm not sure, but you can find that online.
1: Yeah, you can find
2: their bio. So we look forward to that. It's gonna be. It's going
0: to be fun. Yeah, and so Taproom Room Poetry Series has a Facebook page, and that'll link you to the event that's coming up. Um, there's also a taproompoetry.blogspot.com, and you can see what's planned. So um, you can, like Jim just said, you can read a little bit about Toby and Emily, and then you can read a little bit about Jim McCrary, whoever that guy is. <laughs> Because Jim is also featured, which is going to make this a special, special event. So I'm looking forward to being there and and hope that people who are in the area will pop down to the taproom blackness (laughs) to be enlightened by poetry. (laughs)
2: Yeah. (laughs) And we have a great bartender and great, great uh, service Uh as well for that to make your time pass easier. So there's
0: no admission, but bring some no. money for books, for a drink, and for tipping the bartender. Exactly. <laughs> That's perfect, yeah. An appreciation of all that happens there.
1: That's very cool.
0: So read something. Let's have people hear some
2: of your poetry. Yeah, uh, I thought, uh, so I've been, I've been working with the Spencer Research Library collecting uh, materials from our community Uh, to put up there relating to some publishers and publications, poetry mostly in Lawrence, and and as part of that going through my own archives. And uh, of course, it's hard not to think about politics and political poetry, what that is and was and has come, but uh, it's an interesting topic to me and why or what does it matter and why do we write political poetry what role does it play does it make a difference etc so i found this problem i thought uh, i'm gonna read it uh i don't think i think there's some names in here that you won't recognize and that's cool you can uh, insert the names you wish, there's certainly always people uh, I mean where I say uh, somebody, Jesse Helms, you can say Donald Trump or you can say Donald Trump to all of it. <laughs> but I think it's just I don't know exactly when this is because because the thing what I mean I think it's from the from the eighties. But is it relevant? Well, a lot of it's really familiar. Some of the things I'm talking about haven't changed at all. So I'll just read it. It looks to me like it could have been a slam poem as well. I don't want to hear any more about Salomon Rushdie until Leonard Peltier goes free. I don't want to hear about apartheid until Jesse Helms is dipped in piss, cast in epoxy, and launched into orbit. I don't want to hear about Mesito Indians while the genocide of Hopi continues. I don't want to hear about Palestine liberation until Yellow Thunder Camp find Okoto liberation. I don't want to hear about Iraq when seven Chicago kids commit suicide in one week. I don't want to hear about Ethiopian starvation while Peabody coal starves West Virginia. I don't want to hear about the rainforest while Mono Lake bleeds over my shoulder. I don't want to hear about Israeli aggression while the farmers' co-op poisons my well. I don't want to hear about missiles in Germany when the last dairy farm in Douglas County is plowed under. I don't want to hear about drug wars while I step around the woman and her child on Mass Street. You get the message. I don't want to hear about it over there when every night of the year I sleep with it next
1: to me here. Here. Yeah.
0: And so you think maybe you wrote that in the 80s and like I you're
1: saw, saying,
2: it sounds like a Jesse, Jesse Elms and uh, the, the Native American stuff, Peabody Cole, I mean, it's all still going on, but uh, yeah. And so
0: there's, I was just looking. So the book, the, the book that has the poem that I had had mentioned that I, I've had bookmarks since the first time I heard you read. This book was published in 2008, but, but I, I'd love for you to read this poem, too, while we're, we're on this, and I don't know when you wrote that poem, but it's another one where it's every bit as applicable now in the 2017 context as whenever you read it, uh. or wrote it, excuse me.
2: Yeah, this was probably in the eighties. Good. Okay. And uh, uh, it was sort of in response to another fellow, a book of his, but it was just uh, trying to find a way to. To uh, release some of the frustrations that one can put onto themselves, you know, and and uh, and so hence the title. It's kind of self off-putting as well, but uh, it is what it is. That's for sure. It's called the Book of Arrogance, and I published it myself as a Chap book, and it's included uh, in a collection of chapbooks books of mine. A book called All That. The Book of Arrogance. Fuck Israel. You think you deserve to live in a snake pit? Then don't ask me to buy you a shotgun to kill the previous occupants. Fuck Fred Phelps. You do it, please. My dick ain't big enough. <laughs> Fuck Andrea Dworkin. This is a job for Madonna. William says she can borrow Steely Dan. <laughs> Fuck Bill Clinton. I fucking hate being made the fool. <laughs> Fuck all fundamentalists. My arrogance is bigger than yours, yada, yada. Fuck tolerance. I fucking hate intolerant people. (laughs) Fuck the new age. We all know it's crystals, not hairspray, that destroys the ozone. Fuck you. This should need no explanation. (laughs) There's some references in here. Obviously, the Madonnas uh, and William Burroughs. is William, and yada yada is a phrase that, uh, oh, the comedian, can't think of his name now, uh, died of a heroin overdose in the 60s and was a great political and famous comedian that always got busted and couldn't perform in most clubs. Can't think of his name. Andre Dworkin work and was a
0: anti feminist.
2: Uh, so, I
0: love that poem. <laughs> and I'm sad that it's really so applicable now, you know? Yeah.
1: I mean, Fred Phelps. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to read
2: something from a book I wrote, it came out a year ago. And it's called a yearbook. And uh, I don't know if I read it. I don't think I read it published last time I was here. So maybe I didn't read from it. But I was you know, a lot of people and I've read a lot of memoir and people are writing memoirs and uh, I thought about that. And I just don't have the energy to write all that. Mm-hmm. Uh I've tried to, to like you know, for a while I thought I could write every day. And what I ended up is I've got a lot of blank books that are still blank and other <laughs> I, so I was gonna have a journal or a diary. Never worked. I can't write a lot. So what I what I thought I would do was write one line for each year and uh when i first uh thought about this and explained it to a friend of mine i said i'm gonna write one line a year and he thought oh shit it's gonna take an awful long time <laughs> and what i meant was i'm gonna write one line for each year uh-huh. and i'm gonna do it that that way and i'm gonna let the reader fill in the blanks should they desire uh, and through imagination or for self self their own experience or whatever you know uh, and uh so that's what I did you know and there's a lot in there there's a lot of emotional stuff there's a lot of family stuff there's a lot of that but so anyway uh there's the first entry is 1941, the year I was born, and the last entry is uh, 2015. But I'm not going to read all that. Yeah, I might read some more of it Sunday and come up.
1: Uh-huh. But
2: 1941, Geneva, Illinois. Why there? Why that? Was it all white? 1944. Mom said, I carried you around the neighborhood just so they could see you. Today, not so much. 1947, sleeping on a rug on the floor of a classroom. As if that meant something. 1948, dad listening to the Friday night fights on the radio. I play on the floor. Sound of a beating across the room. 1951, all day on bikes in a world that had no limits. 1952, I watched my brother throw a pitchfork and my dad woke me the fuck up. 1956, quit fighting, started smoking. 1958, smoking in high school parking lot, my lime green 50 Ford. 1962, Sid McCoy on radio, late night, crush on Nancy Wilson. 1963, Chicago, you can go to the checkerboard lounge, but mind your P's and Q's, white boy. 1974, sleepy jeans, this old cold rainy day, played forever. 1977, poems written and buried as they should be. 19, I'm gonna go back on this one. 1969, me and S. Clay Wilson, waiting in H Street Park for our ride to Altamont, never showed up.
1: 1988,
2: Virginia Woolf Seminars, where I learned how to like women. 1989, the bar on 6th Street, San Francisco, $25 pint of ale and bindle of coke. Tank top and bathroom shimmered. 1999, should have got a PhD, do-da-do, should have done a lot of things. (laughs) 1999, John Moritz said to me, there are too many poets in Lawrence, could be. (laughs) 2012, the poems are slower, longer, broken, and narrow, not in that order. 2016 numbers it is now all about numbers don't count
1: (laughs) i love that thanks so you've
0: been writing for a long time yeah you have stories of all kinds of people that you've encountered and experiences and i want to get back to the spencer project the spencer museum of History or library, the history library, or whatever it's really called, a research KU library. Research library. So, so, what all? What is this project going to develop into?
2: Well, uh, they have uh, a really great collection of all sorts of material up there. They have a Kansas collection. They have a regional collection, and uh, what I wanted to do was uh, to. Uh, Make sure that I mean it's not that they don't have local stuff; they do have very well covered, and and uh, a lot of the people from
1: from Lawrence have their papers there, and uh,
2: it's really great. But uh, when uh, recently I re got re in touch with an old friend, John Fowler, before he passed away. And he came here in the early 60s and opened uh, a uh, bookstore in a small storefront where the parking garage now is uh, on Orient Avenue across from the Union called the uh, Abington Bookstore. And this was like a alternative community hangout and bookstore. He sold. Uh, and what was it called? Abington. Abington. Okay. Yeah. And he and his wife, Bunny, uh, opened it, and they had alternative press at the time. Um, and by the mid '60s, there were underground newspapers being published around the country, and underground comics, and uh, books, and city lights. A lot of people I know first were introduced to like Ginsburg and Kerley, Getty, and the Beat thing through that, and so. Uh, john also started publishing a magazine called drist g-r-i-s-t and uh, the first few issues were done on a mimeograph and then he did it on a uh, on a uh, lithograph uh, but uh he published a lot of local writers he published about a na- lot of national writers including people like Alan kinsburg first the first publication of his famous poem, Wichita Vortex Sutra, was in Christ. And uh, the uh, people like uh, David Ignato and uh, Ed Sanders, Joanne Kiger, Denise Levertov, uh, mm-hmm. many, poet oh, Charles Olson adorned these people that were writing he was publishing in this magazine, and it became uh, fairly well-known in connection with magazines that were being published in other parts of the country. Ohio, Wisconsin, and Iowa, and New York, certainly in San Francisco, there was this sort of community and people could come in and, you know, this was before uh, internet, before cell phone. The only way of communication was, Mail and, and visiting, and and pe- people traveled a lot. Lawrence was definitely on the kind of the hippie, hippie trail that included uh, places in Ohio and Indiana, Chicago, Madison, Wisconsin, Iowa City, uh, Albuquerque, Santa Fe, Denver, uh, San Francisco. Uh, and Seattle these places definitely on that kind of connection. So people were coming and going anyway. So I got in touch with John and he sent me a lot of his personal archives. Uh, and uh, so I uh, made it a point to, to archive those and, and uh, donate them and uh, also my own Stuff, which included a lot of uh, correspondence and connections with people that came here to read uh, off campus, like Diane deprima and and Dorn and uh, and and Ann Waldman, Joanne Geiger, those people. So I just wanted to to, to uh, kind of and help with the the Spencer does a great job of, of collecting. Uh, and keeping and stuff, so I, I just wanted to keep that yeah. going. Recently, there was a something on, on, on internet, uh,
1: internet, because in the early 60s,
2: a man who worked at the Spencer Library, Terry Williams, published a poem by Yonge and Perk called Entering Kansas City High. H-I-G-H, and uh, it was basically a Ginsburg poem where he's telling about driving into Kansas City at night, driving down uh, Main Street, Rainbow Boulevard, past KU Med Center, uh, and, and ending up uh, something, I can't quote it exactly, on the side street, the red light, Of the 423 Club. Well, somebody online had a question about that and I posted Does anybody know about this poem? It's published as a broadside. And the thing that struck me uh, of how, uh, how progressive it was for here's a guy that's working at KU in like 65 or 66, publishing a poem. From a pot-smoking homosexual, crazy stone poet, this, <laughs> that alone <laughs> is enough. You know, and, and Ginsburg, at the time was was working to legalize marijuana <laughs> and all kinds of other things. And and this was uh, uh, a noticeable event. And looking back on it, what struck me about it was. You know, there weren't many people doing that, publishing uh-huh. that kind of literature. You know, the, the if, if at all anybody, the, the only queer
1: poet, Walt Whitman, was, you know, barely
2: mentioned that, you know, he might have been queer. But uh, he was at some notoriety in the canon, but here was the Terry William. Whit- So anyway, I said something online about, does anybody know what the 423 Club was? A whole lot of people, really great people. Guy who used to be a bartender and another famous uh, queer club in Kansas City. I can't think of the name of it, but uh, Lantern or something, Green Lantern or something. He kind of remembered that there might have been some weird club. Uh-huh. But anyway, it was all that's just kind of interesting stuff to collect and, and bring up and let people know that Lawrence did have this literary history. Yeah. Another f- friend of mine, John Moritz, passed away not long ago. Also was a Lawrence publisher, published books in a magazine called Tansy, and, uh, and then another person, friend of mine, Lee Chapman, published. A magazine and books under the name First Intensity. So, and she published, uh, oh gosh, twenty-three issues of the magazine, I think, and people from all across the genre and the, and the uh, country. So,
1: don't I, hear as much about women doing that, right? Well. Yeah, I mean, it's just I'm the
2: two of the three people I've chronic collected from her men, but uh, there were certainly not as many as there are today. Mm-hmm. But
0: well, and and that just sort of takes me to that book. I can't think of the exact title of it, but something about cows are freaky that Roger Martin and somebody else wrote about Lawrence in the '60s and. And reading that, reading as a woman in particular, reading that is like, this is pretty disillusioning about how women were really treated.
1: <laughs> yeah, well,
2: yeah, I mean, there's no question uh, that. And it's only uh, looking through the collection of magazines, Chris, for instance, from the mid 60s, uh, it wasn't all male. It was mostly all male. Uh There were certainly uh, notable and well-respected and also new women writers that were included. Uh, And uh, same thing with Tansy and also, of course, for its intensity. Uh, but
0: uh, yeah. But uh, you're saying Lee Chapman produced this magazine. She didn't, mm-hmm. wasn't only an artist, she also produced this magazine with various people's work in it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she
2: is an artist. Uh, and she did produce a magazine and books and uh, uh-huh. uh, really a good series. And uh, her complete archives went to the University of Buffalo to have a huge collection of uh, Americana poetry collection. But also, some things stayed here because her, she was a uh, contributing editor and arts editor for John Moritz's magazine and book publishing, and worked with uh,
1: others as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's all that
2: can't change the way things were, uh-huh. but can certainly point out that that uh, some of the women, like Carol Perche and uh, uh, Carol Forche and uh, others that were published in these magazines in the 60s are still, uh, you know, a part of the, the literary scene. Uh-huh. So,
1: and I just came from visiting
2: my friend S. Clay Wilson, who, in San Francisco. He was published his first cartoon drawings and Christ. Magazine in Lawrence, and then went on to become uh, famous as one of the Zap Comics artists, along with Robert crumb and Spain Rodriguez and those guys. And uh, uh, he came through Lilith and Lawrence for a while, and uh, that's where he got his start as a comic. Uh-huh. Then he went out to California. And you know, again, that's a uh, and I just visited him. He suffered a traumatic brain uh, injury a few years back. But uh, so when I went out in California, I wanted to stop by and see him. Uh-huh. And it was great. And again, you know, he there was just a three volume biography of him and his work just published by Fantagraphics, which is, I don't know anyone else artist or poet or writer of or anything and, and Lawrence it has a had a three volume uh-huh. uh oversized color uh set of All his right. drawing. Uh-huh. And I was gonna try to get the Journal World interested in, in an article, but you know, Wilson is Wilson and you know uh ninety nine percent of his stuff is beyond the Publishing in a family newspaper, <laughs> the journal world, you know? uh, But that's that, said, you know. I mean, uh-huh. he did a lot of things that uh, pissed people off and put them off. But uh, in no way as a defense. But uh, he also did a great deal about pushing the limits of. Freedom of speech, Uh for better or worse. Uh And I think when we talk about that kind of politics, we have to, you know, are there limits?
1: Uh
2: Maybe there are, maybe there should be, who knows, you Uh know? Uh, But one way or the other, you can have, he did it, paid the price, but uh, he did. (laughs) <laughs> that's that, uh, but, uh, so that's also part of Spencer. Mm-hmm. I do want to say, I mean, uh, uh, anybody that uh, has things that they think belong up there, be sure to, you can get hold of me or talk to somebody up there if you have materials mm-hmm. or stuff, particular people, that'll uh, be the community. Alternative communities of any kind. You uh-huh, know, there were certainly uh, that was part of the community.
0: Yeah. Well, and I know, like as an example, Tammy Albin spearheads a collection of LGBT materials, which is really which at the Spencer, and so it's it's great to have those things. And because and, I think we forget that, you know, now you can go online and you can find stuff, but the truth is there there are things that are totally missing from what's available online. You know, e- even recently, just a small thing that came up through social media Somebody was asking who remembers the Sister Kettle Cafe, which was a lesbian feminist collective restaurant at 14th and in Massachusetts in Lawrence, and her reason for asking was related to the history of the domestic violence um, support program, which was called the Women's Transitional Care Services in, in the beginning and is now the Willow Domestic Violence and Center, and so. I thought, well, gosh, isn't that on? Isn't it easy to find the history of that organization? And you look online, and no, actually, you can't find the history of the organization. Mm -hmm. And that's part of, you know, the women's movement. It's part of the domestic violence movement. It's part of the queer community activities activism. You know, and it's like, okay, you can't just find that. We need to be able to make sure we don't lose that history as well as, you know, because we learn things from it, as well as respecting and valuing the people who are part of that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's. I remember, this is a total tangent, but I remember the first friend of mine, who was dying and he was dying of AIDS and he was a young guy in his twenties and he had, uh, his work was in social work with people with AIDS. And when Craig was dying from AIDS, he he's he said, "I'm not afraid of dying. What I'm afraid of is being forgotten."
1: You
2: know,
0: mm-hmm. and and that really has stuck with me. That that we want to remember people, we want to say their names. You know, we want to learn. You know, and so the internet isn't the be-all end-all at this point. It just is not. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah, uh, that's true. And there's a lot. I just saw another friend and in San Francisco, there was, he we went to school here in the 60s, and uh, was very uh, active in the community, and, and uh, but, uh, uh, and when I was out there, I, in the gay community, and I asked him, you know, if he had talked to anybody about oral history of, of Lawrence, and he said, not really, he hadn't, you know, and so, uh, and maybe that's his choice as well, but, I mean, uh, uh,
1: who knows? You yeah. Know? And,
2: but there, there's more to be told and, and uh, yeah. there's more to learn. I mean, there was definitely, uh, a community that was open to, to people in Lawrence if they, you know, wish to, to be part of it, yeah. you know, and there was a, there was a time, I guess, in the late sixties, you know, when the, the, there, there was a, I don't know how often it happened, but a regularly scheduled gay dance at the union. Uh-huh. And it was huge, and you know, uh-huh. everybody went, uh-huh. it was just beyond great, and, you know, people loved it. And, and uh, other, there was, you know,
1: uh,
2: a couple of places, kind of like communes that were open and. You know, I remember somebody told me, you know, they they were a student, but they, they'd never gone to a sit-down dinner as an adult, uh-huh. you know, uh, at somebody's house. Uh-huh. And the first one they went to were these gay guys that lived down at, used to be a beautiful old italian house, like this one down at, uh, like, uh, behind where Hobbs uh, Taylor Lofts are, 8th and uh, New Hampshire, and uh, she went. She would somebody told her oh, you should come to dinner uh-huh. Sunday night. And she really? said, it was quite an experience. <laughs> she yeah. was the only one who wasn't wearing a dress.
0: <laughs> and and see, and I think about other things like okay, my my connection that that kept me and Lawrence was getting involved with headquarters, which was started in 1969, and some of the names that you mention are names that i heard people talk about as part of the early days of that center getting started to help people and and it started uh to help people with drug stuff you know how they're yeah. doing with street yeah. drug use and how to help them be safer and you know over the years and and while i was director we became really heavily involved with suicide prevention but but you know, we did a lot of work with with AIDS, um, kind of bringing that issue to to having an AIDS support project, the Douglas County AIDS project, all these different things that happened. And, and my point though, is to go back to some of those people who were those artists who were pushing, 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 pushing on boundaries, were doing amazing good works in the community oh, yeah. as well. You know, yeah. that, that everybody would go, oh yeah, that was a good thing. I didn't know that was also the person who did this, but. Yeah. <laughs> And I bet that the gay dances that you're talking about, in the early days, the thing on campus was called the Gay Liberation Front. And one of the guys who founded that is Todd Zwall. And I never knew Todd, but his brother, Mark, was the one who I knew later, and Mark was the one who opened those Z's coffee shops, and oh. you know, so I, so I've known Mark, and I'm, and I'm just saying that out loud because his brother Todd Wall, I think was probably involved with those dances. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm sure somebody who they aren't, they will be uh-huh. doing more of that. But I think there's a lot of uh, history uh-huh. to collect. Yes, you know. And yeah. Um, I mean, this guy I saw claimed that when the union was burning, he and his friend uh, got out their finest little black dresses and Mm -hmm. popped some popcorn. (laughs)
0: Supposedly
2: started up the hill in her heels.
0: This is kind of hard to do. Those are steep Hill's. To watch the union burn.
2: <laughs> so that's gay liberation. <laughs> Hooray for them. That was Lawrence. It was a crazy place.
1: It's a wonderful place. Uh-huh.
2: Bad things happen, good things happen.
1: Uh huh.
2: How did you land in Lawrence? <sighs> I was miserable and living in Champaign, Illinois, uh-huh. going to the University of Illinois on the GI Bill. And uh, a guy, a friend of mine, came through and he said, uh, and I was complaining, he said, you ought to go to Lawrence, Kansas. It's pretty cool. There's a river, nice town, hills and green, a lot of good people.
1: So, uh, okay, why not? You know?
2: uh-huh. And then got here and was uh, surprised to, to find out that it's really, a lot of things going on with, there was a a writer in residence named David Ignato, and he invited uh, a lot of interesting poets from uh, New York to come and read.
1: Uh, And uh, uh, there was a
2: guy named uh, Ed Greer who taught in the English department who actually befriended Allen Ginsberg invited him yeah, here. And then, of course, the drugs and all the other stuff that was attractive at the time. And <laughs> you could get a job in the bean plant or the box factory. Make a little money. Uh-huh. It was pretty easy. Uh, failed marriage involved in that.
1: Happens.
0: Were you writing poetry before? Yeah, and it was
2: god-awful. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean. I don't know what you know. Maybe uh, not everybody's Bob Dylan and everything they write is, you know, uh, <laughs> goes to the stars. You know, but I look back on the stuff I wrote uh, to, to my mind today. I mean, the only thing I'm interested in is what I'm writing now, uh-huh. kind of deal. And uh-huh. I, don't, I don't, I don't think that's true for everybody, uh-huh. but it is for me. And uh-huh. Not to. There were some good things here and there, but I went through a whole box of of stuff. Uh You know, it's like saving all your kids' heart. Uh You know, come Uh on, you know. Uh And then you look at Uh (laughs) it.
0: So so are you working on a specific collection now?
2: Well, I'm not working on a collection, Uh but... I noticed that uh, I've been working on something and it'll turn into a click uh-huh. and i got I got uh, uh, not some time back i I wrote something that I called sonnet and uh, uh, so uh, actually I started in response, I started inserting. My comments into Shakespeare's, comma mm-hmm. sonnet, kind of a response, mm-hmm. and then I started writing what I call sonnets and they're in all different forms. So I think that's the next uh, thing, and that's that's usually how it happens. I I don't I don't publish as much as some people do, mm-hmm. and that doesn't bother me, although you know squeaky wheels.
1: <laughs> but, uh,
2: I could publish more, but I don't. So I, I, I mean, I'll I, I and what? I'll do this, but, and I'm writing, I'm almost to the point where I can't read
1: out loud what I write. And I don't know if that's the goal or not. Uh, and being dyslexic
2: doesn't help. Uh-huh. reading but I think I'm writing more for the page mm-hmm. than I am orality so when I'm reading now or at the tap room it's great and I like to do it and I'll always include some stuff like the book of arrogance or the other book for that but the stuff I'm most interested in is what I want people to uh, sit with and
1: I do uh do stuff textually
2: that I can't uh, read, you know? So I want people to look at it mm-hmm. and I want them to question whether, is that a misspelling because okay. he's dyslexic or he doesn't care uh-huh. or uh-huh. he doesn't know. And there's a lot of that going on. Okay. Go ahead.
1: We're
0: close to the end, but I'd love to
2: hear this. Well, this is a, probably the most difficult uh, but these are sonnets, and I'll just read a few of them. And and people say you know that that I don't write about personal stuff, which means I don't write about my age or my health. And right now I've got really terrible. Allergies. <laughs> I'm not blowing coke on. <laughs> <laughs> a few years ago it would have been but, but but so yeah and i don't talk about all this stuff I alter marriage sexual yeah, emotions maybe but then i do really
1: uh-huh.
2: but what i'm saying is it's in a different form uh-huh.
1: so these are sonnets
2: and like i say Sometimes it's hard to read them. So many more that cannot speak for me. To them, then might be forsaken by all over. Again and again, beamed into submission and rejected by all but a few who cannot resist. My heart indeed belongs to no one but few as well. What goes up soft floats but does not dance. So this becomes Failed Sonnet number 103. three. Two more than the beginning, like a game went on too long. Just before ending, a new start. Once more with less feeling then. The last time, which was not the best time, however much overcomes less work, more time, always, always searching for the last lost thought. Sonnet 104 falls short, way short. (laughs) If ever there was a choice as to what becomes the most, then surely that choice is made for one and another just before set free and trying so hard to stay chosen does nothing to bring the end in certain stance of course nothing done means nothing Sonnet 105 serves tea at three <laughs> you see certain of these words seem offset and that means perhaps a glimpse at what being forgotten and the sunlight rays create shouts and jigs and meetings all tied up. Yet even that glitter-covered wrap cannot beat down the swelled fame of others, which really does in its way insist we try. Sonic 106 fails into place.
0: <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for doing this show with me today. It's it's an honor, a pleasure, a delight, and and I'm going to tell our listeners, you know, it's not easy to find Jim McCrary. There's not some big old website to go to, so I'm going to ask the favor of Danny Kane at the Raven Bookstore. If somebody contacts the Raven, how to get Jim McCrary books, help them out, please. <laughs> And you will find Jim at the Tap Room Poetry Events. Most of the events that happen each of the months that has that poetry series, Jim will be there sometimes quietly, sometimes at the mic. Um, so so look for Jim McCrary. You are seriously, you are a local treasure, both for what you're doing that art that you put out there of yours and your commitment to, to making sure that these other people's work that were part of this whole body, this whole history, this whole process, um, that they're they're recognized, that they're able to be remembered and respected and considered for, for their contributions. So, so thank you very much. And thank you listeners for this particular episode that you've listened to. It's very helpful. Great. Just wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for doing all this. Glad to. And thanks to Daniel Smith, the producer of the show, for letting you listen. So long, folks.